It is the sentence of this court that Theseus Cyprianus be executed with the sword. Cyprian, thanks be to God. Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod President Pastor Matt Harrison speaking at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. So, I would rather lay down on this spot and have my head chopped off than give up the Word of God. But with that strong, biblically informed conscience, I shall face my day and age. You shall face this day and age. We will confess Christ no matter what we face. And we will bear witness to a better way in Jesus. Come what may. Amen. You can watch and listen to Pastor Matt Harrison making the case for the Lutheran option from the 2023 Making the Case Conference for a $300 gift by Labor Day. You can access an on-demand video stream or download a podcast of the entire conference. Order today at issuesetc.org. Disputed clauses, the ones that were laid out, were supposed to be having to do with interpretation of the Bible. Uh, that was a major factor, but it was really only part of an overall picture in which there were really two different mindsets within the Missouri Synod. One which was uh, mission-minded and uh, ecumenical-minded and was looking outward toward the world, and the other one which was more insular and protectionist and really to protect the church from the uh, intrusions of the world uh, into it. That's former Concordia Seminary and Seminex President John Teachin attempting an explanation for what was under his watch really one of the greatest scandals that faced the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. The majority of the faculty at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis at that time were fully committed to the higher critical method of biblical interpretation, one that essentially discounts the truths of Scripture and rejects Scripture as divine revelation. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining for part seven of our series on the Lutheran battle for the Bible to discuss the higher critical method of biblical interpretation, Dr. Timothy Maschke, Associate Pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Grafton, Wisconsin, Professor Emeritus of Theology, at Concordia University, Wisconsin, author of a chapter in the book, Rediscovering the Issues Surrounding the 1974 Concordia Seminary Walkout. He was also a fourth-year seminary student at Concordia Seminary in that year. Dr. Maschke, welcome. Thank you very much, Todd. During my seminary training in the late 1980s, we were definitely left with the impression that the Seminex controversy was almost entirely about the historical critical method of biblical interpretation of course, it was more complicated than that, but why did this issue among the several that led to Seminex emerge as kind of the poster boy for the controversy? Yeah, I think this has been going on, the issue had been going on for 25 years at least before the walkout. And our Lutheran understanding is that Scripture is so foundational for our theology, it's so foundational for our faith in Jesus, and that when anything undercuts it, that's going to be a problem. And over time, we realized that the historical critical method did undercut the authority of Scripture, and so that became the issue. If you don't have a Bible to rely on, then you really have nothing other than just a kind of a spurious faith that's just kind of in, in nothing specific, but you have other than just kind of a, a nice, pious thought. So Scripture becomes our foundation, and at that point, the historical critical method questioned that very, very foundation. What is the historical critical method of biblical interpretation? 
how long do you have? <laughs> as long as you um, need. <laughs> yeah. So historically, it restarted in the 18th century as we have kind of the Enlightenment and the idea that the human mind has really the ultimate authority. So the method was to look at the Bible not as a divine revelation, but rather as a human document created by men, morphed over centuries, modified uh, depending on who the quote-unquote authors are or editors were, until finally you just kind of have a, a uncertain, as, as uh, one of my college or seminary friends would sometimes say, we have a mosaic book, not by Moses, but just all these little pieces put together the whole idea with the historical critical method was to kind of take all those pieces and find what's what's really reliable and what's not reliable. And so the human mind becomes the very agent for deciding what is and what isn't. So the Bible is a secular book. I would just use secular methods then to study it, specifically more the history. Can you give us some examples of, in your time at Concordia Seminary, under that faculty that eventually would the majority of would walk out over this issue and others, what were you being taught under the banner of the historical critical method? Well, there actually, here's where the issue comes in. It wasn't the banner of historical criticism. At least in my first year class, they said, well, we're going to teach you a method, but they would call it more of the grammatical historical method. And so most of us, we were trained to understand that the you know, historical grammatical was uh, a method that we'd used as Lutherans. And so we were taught, okay, here's the history. And so the emphasis was on the history. And so let's look back, what was the history of these biblical texts? And so we'd get back and look at various forms of the text. We'd look at ways in which then, for example, the traditions, they would say there were different traditions that developed over centuries, and they finally became, you know, kind of brought together by editors until the finally we have the, the scriptures themselves, as we have the canonical scriptures. But uh, again, the, the, the whole idea was that you have different forms, you have different traditions that really made up the Bible. And as a result, there wasn't revelation. There wasn't divine revelation. It wasn't the Holy Spirit guiding, but rather just human agents without any spirit-led guidance. How did the historical critical method fly under the radar at Concordia Seminary for so long? You said at least 25 years. Yeah, well, most people would say it started with, of all people, Martin Charlemagne and Horace Hummel. Back in the 1950s, they came to come to seminary in St. Louis, and uh, both brilliant scholars, and uh, they introduced in the early 50s, here's some new ways of thinking. Uh, they'd gone to Eastern universities and uh, came back with their PhDs, and everybody says, oh, wow, this is the cutting edge. And so that was kind of what started it. Sharon got himself into a little bit of trouble during that time and so kind of backed off a little bit. But the rest of the faculty began buying into this and said so this is kind of the new way. New faculty members came in. They all were trained in the same historical critical approach. And so they gradually, slowly but surely, brought it into the seminary itself. But, as you said, under the radar, there were concerns. Uh, students had voiced concerns to their pastors in the past. Then they would come to the seminary and kind of ask some questions. And uh, the seminary presidents at the time were kind of saying, well, we're just doing the, re the regular old ways of doing it. I've got a quote in my book from Weider Anders, uh, who was, uh, again, one of the leaders in the church at the time. He was a vice president. And if I can just read this a little bit of quote here. So 
the fact that the faculty of Concordia Seminary, which was shifting into the historic critical method, which was beginning to question, for example, that our Lord walked on water, beginning to question the story of Jonah and other parts of Scripture, they were beginning to do that, and they were teaching it to their students. I know that because I had contact with the students. However, when Dr. Benkin and Dr. Harms, the presidents of the Synod at that time, would meet with them, they mean the seminary faculty, they said, no, no, we're still in the same position. Nothing has changed. And we would go on and say to people, nothing has changed when they had changed. They were using historical critical method. In my opinion, Weider Anders is saying they were pecking away and undermining the authority of Scripture. There were other professors who were, however, continuing to promote militantly in their classes the historical critical method. They had changed, but we were told that they had not changed, and that's why I say we didn't square with our people. We didn't tell them that changes had taken place. So I think that was the issue, that it was happening, but everybody said, no, no, it wasn't. And students would come in with their notes to their pastors, and then the professor would say, oh, no, that's the, the students misunderstood. I just want to put a point on that. There was a fair amount of dishonesty involved there. Sounds Quite a like. bit. Until, and this is, I guess, the interesting thing, John Tejan, finally, when he was elected president, he said, yeah, we're doing that. And it kind of was very open and honest about it, that the fact that it was indeed teaching historical criticism. But then he would always say, but they're using uh, Lutheran presuppositions. And so he would kind of argue that there was still some way of using historical criticism with Lutheran presuppositions, and therefore it was okay. And that didn't fly well with, uh, again, at the same time elected, President Price of Synod, uh, Jacob Price. Let's go into a little bit of the history here, beginning with the uh, biblical interpretation method that was employed by the 16th century reformers. Probably the best book on that, just kind of a real simple one that Ralph Bowman wrote, Principles of Biblical Interpretation and Lutheran Confessions. He points out very clearly there that the confessors and the 16th century, they would look at the Bible as God's Word, understanding it that way, and then they would read the text, understanding the grammar, understanding the, the historical context, and then interpret it from that point. So it was often called the historical grammatical method. And that was pretty much common up until the 18th century when the Enlightenment came, and some people then shifted over into the historical criticism. But what's known as the historical grammatical method was basically what was used in the Reformation, and actually, to be honest, that's still what's hopefully being used today in most of our schools. You mentioned earlier the Enlightenment. Just give us a brief introduction to that era. And how did that give birth to the historical criticism, really in every area of study, including biblical studies? Right, yeah. This is called the age of reason, and uh, again, criticism is probably the emphasis on this way of thinking. So don't assume anything that was in the past is valid. So everything is critiqued. Is this really true? Is this really true? You know, is there such a thing as revelation? How can there be revelation? Uh, look at these different texts that we have. And so, again, looking at the long-held beliefs as kind of uh, questioned, that's one of the hallmarks for everything. So science, people are questioning, literature, people are questioning. And then when it came to biblical studies, what does the Bible say? Was it really by Moses? How can that be by Moses? We see duplicates here of the stories in the Old Testament. Or how could Jesus have walked on water? Nobody can do that. So these must be just mythical stories that people kind of said, oh, let's make Jesus something supernatural. So it really questions the whole authority of Scripture itself. What were the presuppositions of the historical critical method? 
first and foundational would be that the Bible is just a basic human document. Rejection of inspiration, uh, rejection of revelation, and then we just approach the Bible. The ultimate authority is the human mind. So again, that enlightenment idea, the human reason, becomes the ultimate authority. You don't need to worry about past doctrines. Uh, You don't have to look at past practices, past interpretations. You have to come up with something that's your own, uh, your own experience. That was one of the things, I guess, just backing up a little bit to um, my own experience, is that one of the things they tried to say to us as students was that you become the authority and you become the interpreter of Scripture. Rather than looking back and saying, well, how has Scripture been interpreted? You kind of go back and it flies in the face of the past. That's even better yet, because you're doing something really creative. You're doing something new. And uh, again, it becomes a destructive process in our Christian faith. One example of that would be, uh, I had one professor, I won't mention the name, but he said, if there is a resurrection, wow. It's like, what? I remember after that class, staying after class and saying, what do you mean? He said, well, I wouldn't say that to Grandma Schmidt, but he said, I don't really know if there is such a thing as a resurrection of the body. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is sad. And then later on, one of my classmates uh, was going out on his intern year, and he said, Tim, I can't. I don't know if I believe in the resurrection. I don't know what would happen if I had to preach on Easter Sunday. And I thought, oh my goodness. And so we, we chatted a little bit more. Fortunately, he dropped out of the seminary on his vicarage year because, again, he didn't believe in the resurrection. But that's how it, it, it's so damaging to a person and to a Christian faith. Then. What about presuppositions regarding the miraculous? If you can create a miracle, I will believe it. If you can't create a miracle... I don't believe it. Again, it's just this pure skepticism. Miracles can't happen. So uh, one of my professors, when we were talking about Jesus feeding the 5,000, I said, well, you know, it's a miracle. He said, oh, no, no, no. He said, what happened is that the little boy shared his lunch, and all these other people were probably selfish and holding onto their own lunches. And then when they saw the little boy sharing his lunch, then everybody else shared their lunch. And there really wasn't a miracle. It's just that people were selfish. The miracle was the selfishness disappeared. Well, that takes away from the deity of, of our own Lord Jesus Christ. Dr. Timothy Maschke is our guest. It's part seven of our series on the Lutheran battle for the Bible. We're talking about the higher critical method of biblical interpretation. On the other side, what other doctrines were questioned or denied at Concordia Seminary? under historical criticism. Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. Journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. journal. Just click the red journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. Register today. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky. The conference includes visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration is open now with early bird pricing at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. 
lutheransforlife.org. This is LCMS missionary, Pastor John Bombaro. The Coeur d'Alene area in North Idaho has a new confessional parish committed to the Lutheran liturgy, excellence in biblical teaching, and faithful pastoral care. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church of Hayden, Idaho, meets at 9 a.m. for our Augsburg Academy and 10 a.m. for the Divine Service of Holy Communion, at which we encounter the real voice and real presence of Jesus Christ. For our location or to join the growing family of Lutherans dedicated to the sacraments, confessions, and historic liturgy, visit BlessedSacramentLutheranChurch.com. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Educating a new generation of Lutherans, you're listening to Issues Etc. I think every man, every Christian should consider, at least, the possibility of God calling him into the holy ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because that's the way that God has designed for faith in Christ Jesus to be spread, for the gift of eternal life that Christ Jesus earned by his death and resurrection to be shared with people by the washing of baptism for infants and for adults, for the instruction, the proclamation of the word that happens uh, on a nonstop basis in God's kingdom. God uses people, he uses men to be those proclaimers, to be those men who who share the, the sacraments. If you've ever considered becoming a pastor, contact Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Their phone number, 1-800-481-2155, 1-800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Luther Academy serves Lutheran pastors to the ends of the earth. Luther Academy promotes genuine confessional Lutheran theology. You won't find a liberal Bible scholarship in Luther Academy's conferences, scholarly exchanges, and publications. Find out about the worldwide mission outreach of Luther Academy at lutheracademy.com. Lutheracademy.com. It's part seven of our series on the Lutheran battle for the Bible. We're talking about the higher critical method with Dr. Timothy Maschke. He's author of a chapter in the book, Rediscovering the Issues Surrounding the 1974 Concordia Seminary Walkout. Dr. Maschke, what other doctrines were either questioned or outright denied at Concordia Seminary under the historical critical method? The ultimate doctrine would be the resurrection, but the, the creation account, and so we have the evolutionary ideas were accepted. We would have the idea that justification by grace through faith would be, well, yeah, but you could probably do it through the law, too. So again, the question of the justification, all the miracles, the power of baptism probably be questioned. The power of the Holy Spirit would be something would be questioned. How could the Holy Spirit have created all these things, and, and how would Scripture have been written by the Holy Spirit? And so, again, just, just like one doctrine after another, once you have Scripture's authority undermined, you would have nothing else else to kind of hang on to. So almost anything could be gone. I'm curious, were the students ever told, I think the phrase you used a moment ago from the professor, 
I wouldn't say this to Grandma Schmidt. Were they ever told, well, don't say this to Grandma Schmidt? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, you know, they all say, you know, and, well, even our homiletics class, don't bring in your exegetical insights necessarily into your homiletics, into your sermons. Yeah. So, I mean, this is from some of my notes, some of the, the faculty members that we had for our just the introductory class talked really about, okay, what are they trying to do for us? So it was like, okay, we're trying to teach you this new method, but like they used the word, we're trying to con you. And I thought, well, that was pretty bold that they were admitting that they're trying to con us into accepting this historical critical, even though they were calling it the grammatical historical critical method, it's kind of what they called it. So let me just hear one, one sentence from one of the notes that I had. Quite honestly, this rather extended introduction, again, the packet that they gave to us, is an attempt to con you into cooperating enthusiastically in the activities of this unit. And what that unit was, was then starting to use what's called tradition criticism, redaction criticism, some of the various tools of historical criticism. And so they're just telling us, we're moving you along. I remember talking to some of my classmates, even saying, doesn't this bother you? Oh, yeah, Mashka. They said, yeah, it bothers us, but just go along with it and just buy into it. It's like, I can't. And I I just, I guess I struggled with it for those four years at the seminary. A little more history. At the beginning of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, how did they approach the Bible? Pretty much in a Reformation style, the historical, grammatical, so they would study the history, they study the grammar, which is why, again, all of our, our seminary training has emphasis on biblical languages, the Greek and the Hebrew, because there's where you get the basic tools for studying the Bible. And uh, you go into that text then, and you then look at, read what the text says. What's the historical context? Again, understanding the history. There's nothing wrong with historical study, but understanding it's not the criticism, it's not that history becomes the authority over the scripture. So it's the scripture itself that's authority, and the grammar gives us the actual words. And so the very words of scripture, scripture interprets scripture, but also then you have to look at the words of scripture, and that becomes the authority. So the the historical grammatical from the Reformation is what our Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in its early years followed. You mentioned uh, Martin Charlemagne and uh, Horace Hummel, both of whom would later recant their positions, of course, but... How did and when did the historical critical method begin to make inroads there at Concordia Seminary? As I think it probably is, is it the 1950s when uh, Charlemagne and Hummel had a presentation to the faculty. They had a paper that they wrote for the faculty, notes on the valid use of the historical critical method. And so they kind of said, well, here's what's kind of new in the academic world, and um, we're just kind of sharing with you faculty members and kind of encouraging you to think about it, which obviously the faculty did, and then later on other faculty members then in their graduate studies, as they got their degrees from Harvard and Yale, came back with that same methodology. And so they kept, as new faculty members came in, they brought that historical critical method into all of the different specifically exegetical classes. Where else did the historical critical method find a home in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod? I guess one of the places where there was some significant investigation was the Valparaiso University, although that wasn't directly a Missouri Synod school. I know there was some concerns uh, with uh, some faculty members, some religion instructors in Bronxville uh, at the time. I know that there were some issues 
Concordia, Milwaukee had, I think, one faculty member that there were some concerns. Seward had, I think, some concerns. Chicago or River Forest at the time, there were some faculty members. So everybody, they were kind of playing around with it. And so they would start speaking about it, and then um, students wouldn't have the critical ability to reject maybe some of these other ideas. And so they were taught, although not promoted probably as much as at the seminary, but at least students already heard about this before they got to the seminary. So you mentioned John Teachin, and he was perhaps the first one to honestly admit that this was a historical critical method. What changed after Teachin was elected president at Concordia Seminary? Oh, everything. Well, I was a combination of uh, John Teachin and Jacob Price as president of Synod, because once there was this honesty now of saying we're teaching the historical critical method, then President Price at the time said, well, then if that's the case, we can't have that done. And so there then became this process of investigating the faculty member to see if indeed what they had heard uh, about historic criticism, if that was really indeed being done. And so uh, there was a whole committee then that set up to study the seminary and to kind of get behind the scenes and find out if that's really the case. And the documentation is pretty clear that they were indeed teaching historical criticism. Tell us some more about that. The, it was J.A.O. Price's fact-finding committee. How did they go about their investigation, and did they encounter the same kind of obfuscation or dishonesty that was occurring in the classroom? Not dishonesty. I guess the fact they were pretty honest. I mean, if you read, it's a marvelous text. I mean, it's probably too wordy for everybody, most people. But yeah, the report that was given to Price can just documentation over and over again, affirming that uh, the idea that historical criticism is a valid approach. And again, they say, well, it's neutral. We're using our Lutheran presuppositions. But then they would question some of the Old Testament, New Testament stories as not being historical. Moses probably wasn't the author of the Pentateuch or the five books of Moses. Isaiah probably didn't write the whole book. Uh, Paul's letters were often questioned. And so, again, these came out in the conversations. And, again, the students had been saying this, but now this was kind of specific documentation now that President Preuss had from the faculty members themselves. During those years after teaching was was elected president at Concordia Seminary, what was student life like from the classroom? Were you talking about these things with fellow students? Oh, yeah, I think so. Like I said, I, I talked to some of my classmates and said, you know, I'm kind of wrestling with, you know, how can I, I buy into this? And a lot of them would. I mean, these professors were winsome. Uh, they were brilliant men. And they would say, well, here, this is this is the new way of, of thinking. This is the new way of doing it. And uh, again, students are fairly gullible. So we figured if the seminary professor says that's the way should, we should do it, then that's the way we should do it. Now, there were always the voices of, of concern. Ralph Bowman, I mentioned him before. Robert Price, uh, also a faculty member. The, the kind of the, those that were in the systematic department had voiced concerns. And it was those concerns that actually President Price kind of reacted to them to say there were concerns. It wasn't just the exegetical department. So the other faculty, were these things being discussed in the dorms, the cafeteria, were the minority faculty that would later be the ones to remain, were they open about it? Sure, yeah. I mean, they would express concerns. Robert Price would sometimes have students over to his house, even uh, during some of the pre-7X the, the walkout, and you know would kind of encourage students just to be strong in, in their commitment to the, the 
Lutheran position, historical grammatical approach, Lutheran confessions. And I know Ralph Bowman would talk about it in class. Again, concerns. Again, the guys were all very much churchmen, though. So Robert Price wouldn't necessarily do it in class. Ralph Bowman wouldn't do it necessarily in class because, again, they tried to be collegial with their exegetical colleagues. And so they were usually kind, but also concerned. And so they kind of, they voiced it more in private or in more carefully nuanced ways so that faculty wouldn't be upset that, okay, Ralph Bowman or Robert Price is bad-mouthing us. We will talk about how the historical critical method endangered the very gospel itself at Concordia Seminary during the battle for the Bible. Dr. Timothy Mashke is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. If you were unable to attend this year's Making the Case conference, we have good news for you. We've produced a recording of each of the speakers' presentations, all of the worship services, and the hymn sing. You can watch an on-demand video stream or download a podcast for a contribution of $300 to Issues Etc. by Labor Day. Learn more at issuesetc.org or make your $300 check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Expert guests, expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. Christological. My friends, Jesus comes only for sinners. Historical. I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by... Sacramental. Take and eat. This is the true body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, given unto death for your sins. To find a Christological, historical, and sacramental church near you, go to issuesetc.org and click Find a Church. Issues, etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series on the battle for the Bible. We're talking with Dr. Timothy Mashke about the higher critical method of biblical interpretation. Dr. Mashke, how did the historical critical method endanger the very gospel itself at Concordia Seminary at that time? Oh, that's a great question, because if you don't have an authority like Scripture, then who says that that gospel message is true? Paul tells us faith comes a hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. It's like, if that word of Christ 
isn't a valid word. Did Jesus really say this? That's kind of, that was the issue. Well, he maybe did, he maybe didn't. Did he feed the 5,000? Well, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Did he walk on water? Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. And so we just kind of, you have no authority when Christ says, uh, your sins are forgiven. How can we affirm that? Did Jesus die for our sins and bring us the forgiveness of sins? Well, yes, but that's just something that's in your faith. We don't really have a biblical text that we can really rely on, at least as authoritatively as it had been in the past. And so you you have the more of a, a faith that's based on feelings rather than on the facts of Scripture. Did you encounter the gospel reductionism, the attempt to basically make the gospel the formal principle rather than Scripture yeah. of theology? <laughs> I remember in the hallway of the chapel, they had a fish skeleton. Somebody had made it anyway. I've seen every once in a while somebody, they, I think little necklaces even of it, but just a bone fish. And it's like, they said, well, that's gospel reduction. So we take everything. You don't need those miracles. All you know is Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and that's it. And so if it, if it doesn't impinge on that basic message, Jesus is your Savior, then you can do anything you want. And again, that undermines the whole authority of Scripture. Because again, if Christ didn't say these other things and do these other things, what's to say even that, that gospel itself, that message of Christ's forgiveness, is valid? So you say that by 1972, the majority of the seminary faculty was fully committed to the historical critical method. Why do you say that as a date? Well, that, again, that's just when um, Tijan, Price, both kind of the, the confrontation finally happened. I got there in 70, so it was probably in 70, or before that already, that that was pretty much accepted by the exegetical department. I can't speak quite that authoritatively on the historical department, although I do know that a couple of the faculty members of the historical department also was very supportive of the historical method. Because it was historical and so historical critical, they liked that. I think one or two systematic faculty members also did it. But in 72 is when it kind of opened up. That was kind of the, the big issue. But before that, it was already there, and the majority of the faculty members were supportive of it. How did the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod respond at the 1973 New Orleans Synodical Convention? Well, they said we no longer should be using historical criticism. They had faculty members come there and try to defend it. And ultimately, I guess it was, and again, I, I, don't, I wasn't at that convention, but at least at that point, uh, they kind of said, no, we, that position is in violation of Scripture, and so uh, we can no longer use that method at the seminary, and the seminary faculty said, no, you can't tell us not to do this. And so they walked out, and that's kind of what, they walked out of that convention, but then later on, the next spring, that's when they walked out of the seminary itself. So go through what happened after that convention spoke on the subject. There was (laughs) much happened, a lot of meetings, a a lot of uh, uh, argumentation back and forth. Finally, I think there was a, a suspension, at least a threat, suspension of um, Dr. Tejan. I know faculty members were um, talking about the concern that Martin Sharnam remembered giving a presentation to us students about the problem of historical criticism. But then finally in January it was of 74 uh, is when President Tejan was uh, suspended by the Board of Control. And then the students then that night then kind of met and then said, let's meet tomorrow morning. And then from then on, there were these programs, plans, to get that word out so that we're going to walk out because we want to support 
our faculty. Were you on campus for the yeah. actual walkout event? Tell us yep. about it. Yep. Oh, very emotional. I remember the, the first day they were saying, okay, you know, we're going to suspend classes until the, the Board of Regents reinstates uh, teaching. That was kind of a basic mantra. I remember standing up and saying, let's not make this open-ended. Let's say, let's do it for a week, let's do it for two weeks, whatever, but then let's come back and finish our seminary training. And that obviously didn't get listened to. <laughs> so there were plans, uh, student meetings, and finally by the end of that week, I think it was at the end of the week or early part of next week, there were groups of students that were encouraged to go back to their home congregations and kind of speak about what had happened to the faculty, what had happened to Dr. Tijan. Then we're supposed to, again, come back a little bit later and kind of meet and see what we can do. Now, a lot of the stuff seemed like the actual walkout day. It's like, oh, this is a kind of a spontaneous action. It really wasn't quite as spontaneous. Uh, this, these are plans that were in the works. And so, for example, the crosses that were on the quad, the door exiled. I mean, these are things that were prepared beforehand. And so we had students that were even uh, responsible for symbolic actions. Faculty members and students were working together on these events. I had even been involved uh, because later on, again, the seminary majority uh, became Seminex, but I would already was already involved in a group. There were maybe four or five of us that they knew we wanted to do graduate work. And so they called us in and, and would be interested in, in attending a parallel seminary. And what they described then was what happened at the Seminex. So this was not something that was just, oh, just happened. This is planned. This is orchestrated from way back. What would you say is the state of biblical studies in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod today after that momentous event? I think strong. Both seminaries, I think, are good exegetical faculty. Uh, They certainly, they're aware of historical criticism, but again, the methodology, and actually even among, even some of the more liberal schools, some of the faculty have even gone beyond historical criticism and just said, let's go back to look at the text that we have. Both seminaries, uh, the Greek, the Hebrew class, uh, the foundational for studying scriptures, so the historical grammatical method is still being used there at both seminaries. And again, the presuppositions are, this is God's word. The presupposition is, it's an authoritative word for us. It still speaks to the contemporary society and it's God's word. And so we humble ourselves. If we can't always make sense of it, we humble ourselves and let Scripture become the authority over our understanding. So if you can't understand a miracle, accept it as a miracle, as a revelation from God. The Holy Spirit caused these to be written, and so we accept them as such. So I think that's both, both seminaries have that strong biblical basis for their exegetical studies right now. And so people listening to their pastors, that's the kind of authoritative word they're also hearing from them. So I think, I think we're back to what should have been all along, but uh, they're back to what's uh, present good study of the biblical text. For you personally, did the false teaching of higher criticism impact your Christian faith? And if so, how were you able to withstand these false teachings and maintain an orthodox biblical Lutheran faith and approach to the Bible? <laughs> good question. Actually, I, I knew that the seminary, that there was historical criticism, or these concerns about historical criticism when I went to the seminary. My father was a pastor at the time and said, was trying to dissuade me from going to St. Louis. And I said, Dad, I'm going to, I think I can still stay conservative, even going 
to the St. Louis Seminary, which I had that mindset of saying, you know, I know there are problems. And so I guess I flipped the historical criticism on its head by saying, I'm going to be critical of the historical critical method. And so I would kind of say, well, wait, is this really a valid approach? And so it didn't affect my faith as such as kind of my, my distrust now of some academic disciplines that push only one agenda. And so I guess that was where I would probably say it was not spiritually, but more emotionally. When I hear things that are kind of pushing in a direction that's like, wait a minute, you, you, you're denying what's been a position all along, and you're denying the very historicity of the biblical text. So I always trusted the biblical text. I think I still have a little bit of a, a when I look at the biblical text, I still I question, but then I always humble myself before the text. There's a Roman Catholic theologian that spoke about secondary naivete. I like that idea. So it's like you humble yourself as a child again, and you listen to the Bible, and you read it, and you take it as God's Word. It's an authority from God. God speaks to me, and it affects my faith. The negative doesn't affect my faith, but the positive, it does affect my faith, because I grow in my faith. I hear that Word of Christ, and I can believe that Word of Christ, because, again, the Holy Spirit not only speaks in that Word, but speaks to my heart then through that Word. Dr. Timothy Mashke was a fourth-year seminary student during the 1974 walkout at Concordia Seminary. He's associate pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Grafton, Wisconsin, professor emeritus of theology at Concordia University, Wisconsin, and author of a chapter in the book, Rediscovering the Issues Surrounding the 1974 Concordia Seminary Walkout. You can purchase this book on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Dr. Mashke, thank you very much. Todd, thank you very much for asking. Issues Etc. has brought to you in part this week by Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas. Faith Lutheran provides a classical Lutheran education for pre-K through 12th grade. Learn more about Faith Lutheran School, Plano, Texas at flsplano.org. flsplano.org. Next week on Issues Etc., we'll have Pastors Brian Wolfmiller and Brian Ketchelmeyer respond to your unanswered Bible questions. You could submit your question via email, talkback at issuesetc.org, at Facebook, facebook.com slash issuesetc, Twitter, at issuesetc, or the Issues Etc. listener comment line, 618-223-8382. I'm Todd Wilkin. Go to church on Sunday. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.